podcast at the intersection of faith and fear where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us this is the fear of god speaking to you right now is one of your hosts nathan rouse and typically with me is fellow co-host reed lackey and guys he was here but he rushed out saying he needed to get his oprah shot i tried to tell him with oprah everyone gets a shot you get a shot you get a shot but he was gone before he could hear me he will be back (laughs) I hope. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you listeners back to a brand new year here at the Fear of God podcast and into our current series. Every February, we cover films from the previous year's slate of horror releases, and 2023 is no different. What is different is today we'll not only be covering a 2022 film, but right now I am also joined by Friend of the Fog, best-selling author whose newest release, Destroyer of Worlds, is about to hit store shelves. It is our friend, Matt Ruff. Matt, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me back. It's always fun Absolutely. to see you guys. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Now, uh, clarify momentarily, because uh, I actually forgot to look up when Destroyer of Worlds actually releases. Is that... It's it's this month, February 21st. Nice. Awesome. So this, will, this episode will release... Reed will tell us when this episode releases. <laughs> I am not the bookkeeper around here. Uh, that said, listeners, today Matt is joining us to discuss Jordan Peele's 2022 film, Nope. 
But before we hop on our horse, permit me to remind you listeners that here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now when I explain, you can find not only your hosts and other foggy peers in our Fear of God Facebook group, but any and every other fog and fear of God thing imaginable can be found at thefearofgodpodcast.com, such as how to support us on Patreon, essays, team bios, episode archives, merchandise, read! What there if I come. told you? No, I'm just kidding. Huh. Um, <laughs> No, I, I was doing. You were, but, oh, were you no, doing an Oprah I was thing? Do, yeah, no, not the Oprah thing. I was doing the opening of uh, Jupiter's Claim, where he was like, "What oh. if I told you?" And so, but anyway, it's a, it's a very. <laughs> I did watch the movie. It's a very obscured reference. I do, I do admit, but still, Matt. That's okay. It's good to see you. <laughs> really good, <laughs> good to, to see you too. Oh, thank we're you just, for being here. It's a, it's a roughhousing kind of day. Um, <laughs> so we've got some very quick business time. Read. We referenced on uh the Deadstream episode we referenced mm-hmm. on the barbarian episode mm-hmm. uh that we are beginning mm-hmm. in february <laughs> oh last, yeah man i keep thinking it's january still man, no it's we've it's crossed already over, over. we've crossed already over. Yep. um but we are starting a brand new patron perk this year that of the happy hour horror hangout um about 45 minutes or so ideally we're going to be targeting these once a month we're going to talk movies we're going to play question games we're going to discuss watches we are just going to hang out it is meant to be low to no pressure come uh uh, hang with your boys um and the very first one is going to be on sunday afternoon february 26th at 3 p.m i'm Mm. sure once i run that date by my wife she will not correct me on the, sca- the calendar at all because <laughs> I definitely <laughs> forgot to do that. If you want to come out and hang with your fellow foggers, sign up at any patron level via the links on the website and we will see you there. Uh, speaking of Patreon, speaking of whatcha, Matt and Reed, it is time to go to the patron mobile. about this episode so we're going to talk about nope here momentarily but before we do allow me to formally welcome our guest uh ambassador from lovecraft country with some hard-hitting questions mr matt ruff about why your books are being banned from florida classrooms (laughs) i'm I'm kidding oh if only i'm I'm kidding for now for now (laughs) Um, like a badge of honor at at this point uh you are school children weeping because they can't read me that would be right (laughs) yeah or or the high schoolers um (laughs) i can start preaching instead of teaching uh at this point you are uh, a fog fam alumnus for those who don't know uh matt is an award nominated and award-winning author of a myriad of books uh, including the aforementioned Lovecraft Country and its eminent sequel, uh, 88 Names and Bad Monkeys. That sequel, I accidentally uh, read my stuff out of order there because I wanted to make sure I referenced, oh, by the way, Mr. Ruff, been sleeping on this one in your Wikipedia page, this unpublished novel about a Lutheran minister's son who questions his faith. I'm very interested in that. Saw that. I was like, wait a minute. That sounds <laughs> yeah, very yeah, fascinating. Why? 
my Wikipedia page. I don't know who wrote that, but they basically <laughs> just went to my website and pulled out like factoids sure. and then threw them together in a way that I just, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm well, not I'd like to report that it was me. Okay. I no. built that <laughs> Wikipedia page. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even know how to do that. No, I, know, uh, I know you are, but <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I caught that subtle wink, but yes, author of bad monkeys, 88 names, Lovecraft country and the about to be released destroyer of worlds uh, a, a very upliftingly titled book matt thank you for being back on the show with us my friend i've got a couple of questions reed may have a few um and then i'll tie us off and take us into the film discussion so you know matt despite our rather lengthy john carpenter conversation from uh, you know late uh, or second half of 22 we we haven't really touched back on uh, Lovecraft Country, your experience with the show and 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 what that was like. I, I'm curious. Can you talk a little bit? Um, not not you know don't it's it's not so much about hey what was your experience while the show was going on and your relationship to it. It's more about uh, Destroyer of Worlds existing in relationship to what did or didn't happen with the show. Was this a was it a foregone conclusion to you that you would always follow these characters into future stories? Was it inspired by the fact that the show didn't get picked up for the future? So, so, so that's part a part B is in view of that. Um, what was kind of the hook that kind of got you into destroyer of worlds? If you can share some of that. Sure. So, um, as, as you know, people have heard me talking about this before, I mean, Lovecraft Country did start out as an unsuccessful TV series pitch back in 2007. And when I couldn't get anybody to bite on that, I started thinking about, okay, how can I reimagine this as a book? Um, and part of that discussion I had with my agent was, do I pitch it as a single standalone novel or do we pitch it as a series? Because, of course, I'd, I'd imagined it as a multi-season like I had a general idea of a multi-season arc of where you could go with this basic concept. And so that is something I could have adapted as a book series, but basically, you know, the, what we decided was it just didn't make economic sense for me to try to pitch it as a series. And my, my agent suggested, and I agree that like, write a single novel, do your best with the, the idea. And then, you know, if, if the book does well, and if you decide at that point you still want to do more, then great. We can always go back and pitch a, a sequel or more books. Um, and that that was a perfectly good compromise. And, and so I wrote Lovecraft Country to stand on its own. And, if, you know, I, I would have been perfectly happy if that is it was the only thing I'd ever done with the idea. But even as I was writing it, I, I was thinking about, you know, this this larger idea. And it started to take shape in my head that, yeah, I... I could carry this forward, you know, and, and write a continuation that, you know, the book, the book takes place in 54 and 55. And because it centers around this family, you run a travel agency and publish a fictional version of the green book called the safe Negro travel guide. And the real green book ceased publication in, I believe 1966, because once the civil rights act was passed and, you know, you, you were no longer able to exclude people from accommodations on the base of the race. There was no longer a need for a special book to tell black tourists where they could go. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it always seemed to me that, that if you were going to do, you know, if you're going to do it as a TV show or as a series of novels, that would be the good ending point was carried forward to the point where the book can cease publication. So in the back of my head, as I'm working on Lovecraft Country, I was thinking about that. And the idea just didn't go away. If, if anything, it became stronger. And so... I wanted to do more, but the question was, um, 
Well, there were two things. One was that I realized if I, you know, Lovecraft Country could work as a single book, but if I went back to the well a second time, then I was really going to want to commit to not just one more book, but at least two and probably the three that I would need to tell mm. the full story. And wow. that's, you know, I, 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 I was teasing this in interviews for a couple of years after the book came out where I was like, well, yeah, you know, I might write about it, but that's a big commitment. And basically what I was saying was I want to do this, but... I would need to get my publisher on board and I would need to really be willing to commit myself to something because I don't write very quickly. This could easily take, you know, years and years for me sure. to finish. And I don't want to be George R. R. Martin. And I, <laughs> I was like, about to make the reference, but I'll, I'll let you make it for us. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like his bank account, but I, I don't want to be sure. that thing where, yeah, you're basically in limbo doing the same thing forever. So, but the thing that, that basically happened is because the series the series happened, even the one season, Lovecraft Country at that point became a New York Times bestseller. And at that point, it was much easier to pitch the idea of doing another mm. book. And basically, I reached this point where I had to decide, you know, do I ever want to do this? And if I do, now is the time. And yeah. I did. I, I knew that I did. It was just a question of committing. As for the, the connection between the, the books and the series, um, my contract with HBO basically is I retain the literary rights. I can write sequels to the novel. I cannot take anything that they created new sure. for the series and they're free to continue the, the, you know, the series or not continue it as the case may be without any further input from me. And mm. one of the things I actually liked about the series was that it was not just a carbon copy of the book. Misha yeah. Green had her own very distinctive vision about what it was and where she wanted to go. And it was clear by the end of season one that, you know, she killed off like half the cast. So yeah, she was yeah. she was resetting the board to carry the story forward and do her own shtick on that, her own version of it. And um, you know, what what she posted about season two, her plans for it after the sure. af after the, the the series was canceled made it clear that it was really gonna swerve into alternate history territory. Whereas mm. my thought was always to hew very much to a more, you know, I, I wanted to tell a story that could have happened in our world. You just never heard about it before. So, mm -hmm. which affected everything from the way I handled magic in the book to other things. And, and, um, and that kind of excited me for a while. It looked like there might be this chance to have this story continuing on two very different divergent tracks. Micha doing her thing, you know, on, on air and me going in my own way in print. And I, you know, and one of the things I loved about that is just, you know, in, in much the same way that the book was sort of a proof of concept that, this story could work at all. Um, this would be proof of concept that you can take the same basic idea and, and simultaneously develop it in two very different ways, which partly because of the way internet, you know, uh, intellectual property works, that almost never happens. They, they mm -hmm. generally, one, one entity owns all of the IP and, and tries to get it all pulling in the same direction. This was like a chance to like prove you don't really need to do it that way. You can, you can do yeah. different versions of the story. And then, of course, unfortunately, HBO just decided not to renew the series. So um, we got one really good season, and that's that. And but I at least still can do my thing. Um, mm -hmm. So again, I'm I'm really sorry. I'm not going to see um, Misha's version, but um, yeah, 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 um, yeah. So that's that's that the the connection there. And then I'm sorry. What was part B? <laughs> uh, mainly, it was oh. just kind of was there a primary story hook that that you got jazz that, that led you into destroy our worlds you know 
Well, I mean, as I, as I talked about, I think the last time we spoke about this, I mean, my my sort of my central through line for these novels going forward, it's, it's going to be the coming of age story of young Horace, who is the, mm. the young son in the family who became D in the TV series. Um, That's right. Yep. And um, I guess, you know, with this book in particular, because it's, it's, you know, the destroyer of world, it is basically about mortality and coming to grips with that, that point in your child when you realize, oh, yeah, I'm going to die one day and I've got, I've got to figure out how to deal with the uncertainty of what that means for me. And there is, you know, in the novel, it's his, his one of his friends has been shot to death in this totally senseless police, uh, you know, thing. And he's reeling from that. He's angry. He's confused. He's questioning what he believes about, you know, God and and and. There comes, there is a scene early on in the in like the first third of the novel where after some things happen, he and his mother finally get a chance to sit down and have a talk about this and the conversation that unfolds between them. I mean, without getting into spoilers, it was when I sort of imagined that conversation that I realized that, you know, I had something that mm. that mm. alone was, I had something to say beyond just these are the further adventures of those characters you liked. It's like, you know, it is that, and that's that's certainly part of the draw, but also that I, I had something a little more substantive to, to say underneath that and with that. And and that was, I think, the thing that grabbed me and like that made me feel like I really want to do this. And even I'll, if it's I'll not... Let, um, yeah. I'll, I'll let Reed follow uh, uh, with something substantive because I know we both, uh, he and I even texted about this. I say this to you sincerely, no heaven at all, which is the chapter you're referring to is, is, is an incredibly powerful piece of uh, Mm -hmm. prose writing. And, and and even as I read it, I thought this is awesome. And this is worth the price of admission alone. Uh, There's some really, you know, for, for folks like us who think the Mm -hmm. way we do talk about the things we do. um, It it really hit a lot of very resonant chords. So very much kudos to you. And, and, and yes, that, that chapter is very, uh, is is a standout from a sort of philosophical standpoint. No, uh, absolutely. And in fact, that was I was going to piggyback off of that. And again, we'll be sensitive to because we're not uh, unlike when we get into Nope, where we're just going to spoil everything about the film. Um, <laughs> sure. I do want to be a bit sensitive because this episode will come out before the book's even available to the mass public. So I want to make sure that we we stay a bit sensitive to spoilers. But I was really taken with um, not only in that you know chapter that we keep sort of referencing a wonderful conversation. It was a delight to read. I didn't do this much through the book, but when I finished that chapter, I gave it a beat and then I went back and I reread that chapter again. I just, I thought it was really, really uh, just a lot of rich meat on those bones. Um, But speaking of bones, one thing that I did (laughs) find interesting is uh, there is a lot, or at least I picked up on a lot uh, about not only just death and coping with death, but a lot about, well, I found this interesting legacy that there's a lot in the early stages of the novel about the transportation of bones and and burial and just like moving what is dead and gone to a place for a particular reason. And I was very curious about that. It, it it ignited my imagination. Obviously, narratively, these characters are doing something that's very um, uh, tangible in the sense of they have to get from point A to point B and they have missions according to what their individual goals are. But I just found those connections and found that really interesting and compelling and was wondering if there was more that you wanted. To, I, it's not framed as a very effective question, but I was just curious about it from, from your perspective. Well, it's funny. One of my early working titles for this was actually was The Unlovely Bones, which is sort of a, mm. you know, obviously <laughs> a play on the Alice Siebold, Lovely Bones. And yeah. I, I moved away from that in part because I just didn't want to, you know, 
I, I kind of didn't really want to tie myself to, to her to her story or or you know it, it because it's it, it's other than being kind of a pun it doesn't really make that much sense but mm-hmm. um, but also because yes as I was writing there was this sense of imagery of yeah that that the, the physical remains kept coming up as well and mm-hmm. you know and there is that quote at the beginning of the novel from uh, oh gosh I'm forgetting the the exact verse but it's it's you know it's something like um, you know, you you will carry up. Basically, the, is it carry up my uh, bones? Yeah, yeah. You will carry yeah. up my bones from here, and it's yeah. it's, it's where Joseph the, talked about yeah. Genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Joseph. It's Joseph basically pledging his own bones as mm-hmm. as a as a promise that God will fulfill His promise to the children of Israel. Because it's basically, I think it's what it's like four hundred years before the Exodus that he dies, and right. But he says, yeah. You're you're gonna you're gonna carry me out of here one day, and so it's like you know I'm not gonna I'm gonna go with you, but as a dead person, but I I believe that much that this is going to happen, and so and that so it just kept coming up that idea of of yes that it, it fed into the general the general larger theme in the book of just how do you go on not you you know in the face of uncertainty and how do you keep finding the strength to keep going when you can't know for sure that your faith will pay off. And yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, um, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, that's it. No, and, it was, and, it was great. Yeah. It was, it, I, I found it really, uh, uh, Nathan, I'm not stealing no, your thunder, good. but just follow, just following up. I just found that really compelling. It left a lot in my imagination. So, so your, your book gave me a lot to ruminate on when I would step away from these individual chapters, just thinking about this concept of like, yeah, okay. The, the, the bones of a thing, in in one sense honoring, uh, but in you know other senses there could be some ritualistic kind of thing to it. Uh, but just like the significance of what's dead and gone, but still there's some significance to the bones and and mm-hmm. how many things that we would look at. Not trying to get too philosophical about everything and and read more into it than maybe was intended, but the idea of like there's we could all point to something metaphorically or not and be like yeah there's the bones of a thing there and I don't know it it I found it really compelling and it just ignited my imagination in a lot of personal ways that probably aren't worth getting into here but I just wanted to to point that out that I thought that was really compelling so thank you for all of that Nathan oh, I didn't you. mean to cut you off you're good man um, I will definitely read more than what might have been intended here momentarily Reed I've got one more sort of <laughs> I've got one more sort of craft question for Matt, um, and then I've got kind of a wrap up. Do you do you have another question you'd like to? I have one more them? tiny okay. craft question in between sure. those. If you can. Um, yeah. So so kind of craft stuff, Matt. This is just you know fun. How does a sausage get made? Kind of stuff for me. I always find interesting. And and what's really um, I'm sure you've gotten this. We may have even said it. I've got a short memory. My apologies. When we talked about Lovecraft Country, the novel, the first time when you were on, like. The, the ways your both of these books specifically are structured and, and the first one ha- very much has a if you don't know it's about to feel and anthology style, it mm-hmm. can be a bit of a swerve. This one has a, a, some echoes of that. They're not as heavily played in the front end. But my main point is there's a lot of characters and a lot of disparate uh, uh, threads that have to kind of converge. And it's funny in sort of thinking about this idea. I remember recently listening to Tony Gilroy talk about crafting Andor season one and just, you know, the, the, the ways you need a, a character to arrive either at a discovery or a destination and the inventive and fun things that get discovered to help facilitate these things. And so I'm kind of curious from you, you know, you can spoil as much or as little as you want in, in your answer here, but like, 
I guess one, do you, is that fun to you? Is it fun? Let me, you know, throw all these characters to the winds and, and find ways for them to get back to each other. And, and, uh, or is that, can that be frustrating? And was there any particular sort of narrative beat that like, man, I'm having a hard time cracking this, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense what I'm trying no, to No, I, I know, I know what you're saying. Well, I mean, this is, this goes back all the way to my first novel, Fool in the Hill. I just seem to have a knack for finding ways to connect disparate things to one mm-hmm. another. So um, you know, I, I often get asked, do you outline? And the answer is no, that I just, I'm just, I'm able to keep track of when I'm in the midst of it, where everybody is and, and how it's all going to fit together. And that's just a thing that I've always been, you know, had a knack for. Um, and, and also for doing it in a way so that even though they are separated, that they do kind of thematically f- still connect along the way. So obviously like the first third of the novel is about two different journeys in two different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of going back and forth. And, um, I think, you know, the, the, in terms of the, the crafting of it, I mean, the, the only real revision in one say w- that I did, like the biggest revision was simply that it, particularly in that, in that first third, the, I, I was jumping back and forth between the two narratives a little too often. Um, there was, it was almost like jump cutting and my, and part of that was just because it, it, it made the chapters short and easy. Like I'll sit down and write a chapter and I can actually finish a whole chapter in a single day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it created some structural difficulties where different things were happening. Think scenes that really should have been right next to each other were separated for this purely mechanical reason of the number gotcha. of chapters and the need to keep going back and forth. So I, you know, my, my editor suggested, and I immediately saw the wisdom of, yeah, let's, let's combine some of these chapters and, and cut the, you know, stay with, stay with each storyline a bit longer at a time and let them, you know, let the, let them breathe that way. And that, that solved, I knew that was the right answer because as soon as I was thinking about it, it solved these other problems that I was having with the way it played out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, the only other thing is that, I mean, one of the things I did discover about this is the great thing about sequels is because you're not reinventing the wheel and because you already know the characters very well, it actually proceeds a lot faster. This this mm. book was one of the fastest writing experiences once I got going. Mm. I still spent a lot of time thinking about what was going to happen before I got started, but once I got going, it was very quick because I knew I knew how everybody talked, I knew how they thought, I knew how they would react. Um, the one exception being that I do introduce this new character, Anthony Starling, who it's implied will become, you know, sort of uh, Letitia's new beau. And he's a, he's mm-hmm. a guy, he's a, he's a pilot who, among other things, become their means of returning from Las Vegas to Chicago in time to meet up with the other characters in the, sure. in the finale of the story. And because I was introducing him, because I hadn't really quite, I, it took me a while to figure out exactly, you know, is this just a, a one-time character? And I was like, no, I, if, if I'm introducing him, I'm going to want to do something with him. And what am I going to want to do with him? And I didn't want to box myself in by deciding too much in advance. So that I spent probably more time thinking about how to integrate him into the story without hamstringing myself in the future than, huh. than you know, yeah. on almost any other element. And it's just it part partly because it's that that's part of the thing. I haven't quite figured out what their future is going to be. Sure. Um, so, but well, I mean, you that, could, you yeah. could just make an outline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just abandon yeah, process yeah. entirely. Um, so, well, and, and I'm going to piggyback on that a little bit with my, with my craft question. You've already touched on some of this, so, so I won't have you rehash everything that you, that, that you did address already, but I did find it interesting that, as has already been alluded to, so uh, listeners should have already read Lovecraft Country. We featured it heavily uh, a couple of years ago. But um, that 
book was very much an anthology of complete stories. You would begin a story, that story would resolve before you would move on to another one. But I did find it fascinating that the format of this one was different in that you were following multiple stories simultaneously. And my questions, which again, you've already kind of touched on this, but was it an intentional choice to vary up that formatting? Oh, yeah. Or was, and, and, yeah ahead, and, uh, no, no, it's okay. The part B of it is, would there be intention with future sequels to let me play around even further with the formatting and see what we could do, you know, moving back and forth through time or whatever else. I'm just, I'm just curious about if that was deliberate or not. No, no, it was deliberate because yeah, this was actually one of the stumbling blocks I had to get past to, to figure this book out because initially I'd assumed that, well, yes, of course I'll have to use the same structure. And the problem was that that didn't work because I, Mm. the story I wanted to tell actually needed to be able to go back and forth between different storylines. And I, and it, it, it made sense in the first novel because each chapter is a chance to get to know each character in depth. Sure. But once you know who they are, that is no longer necessary. And at that point, trying to figure out, yeah, let me do this as episodically and like, you know, do a complete story here and then move on here. It didn't fit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, but I actually got blocked on that for a long while. And it wasn't until I was talking to a friend of mine, Christopher Moore, the novelist, Christopher Moore about oh. this. And, and he was, He's the one who told me the obvious, which was like, Matt, it's, you know, you don't have to use the same structure in this book. You can, you can do a different one if it works better. And it's like, oh yeah, of course, of course I can. But so, yeah. And as far as going forward, I think that this, this narrative structure will fit everything, you know, going forward as well. Um, the, the main question, like thinking about the, the, the next book I want to do is just because Horace is now really taking center stage the trick is going to be figuring out how to keep the other characters in play around him. And um, so the structure may vary in, in that sense that it's, it's going to become even more horror centric and I'm going to have to, you know, that's a, I've got to be careful how I pronounce that. Horace um, <laughs> centric. Um, and um, so, yeah, just just making sure that everybody has something to do and that mm-hmm. that that the the pieces. But, you know, I'll figure that out. I, sure. I, so, sure. Yeah. Of course. No, it was uh, well, it was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, yeah, maybe as a as a as a tie off as we uh, head towards the old west um, and, and all it portends for us, you know, I can be king of overreading. And so, you know, forgive Matt if this is that, but wanted to kind of end our time talking about this book and even it paired with Lovecraft country and, you know, perhaps hyperbolically just to tell you, thank you. I know your vocation can be probably an isolating one. Maybe you hear it plenty. Maybe you don't hear it enough, but thoughts that I had when I read Lovecraft country initially, (laughs) Lovecraft country is a tough phrase it's a lovely it's an awesome phrase but it is it's tough to just make roll right out um thoughts that i had reading book one only got amplified reading destroyer of worlds and again at risk of overstating what i receive you doing in this particular literary world you've created is brave work in my opinion and is the truest expression of good fiction literature. You have activated characters in a specific time and place. You have imbued them with truthful perspectives and honored them as fully formed. You have sublimated your own preciousness and protectiveness 
of your identity to ensure theirs is honored foremost. You have done the work of ensuring that the truth of the burden these characters experience is in line and in step with what characters of the Jimco era in this country would have felt and thought. Moreover, to me, the bravery of doing so and the awe I felt in places reading it was born of the story choices you make that are visible for those with eyes to see that Celia Fox is Tyree Nichols, is George Floyd, is Breonna Taylor, is, 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 on and on. And the truth of legalized oppression in the Jim Crow era is also the truth of racist political sentiment and policy that is alive, active, and well in our own Lovecraft country, exemplified by things like the aforementioned Florida's efforts to put in place laws banning books, to ban advanced placement African-American study classes in high schools, to suppress knowledge which, if attained, could beget wisdom, which could beget flourishing. I'm almost done, I promise. Instead, we use our white supremacy magic in the form of public policy and the judicial system to keep making the same choices the Winthrop's and Braithwaites and all the rest like them make in your story. So I am proud of you. I'm proud to know you. I'm thankful you're our friend and a friend to the show. And I say, keep up the good work, sir. Here, here. Amen. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad it, it, I'm glad you, you feel that strongly about it. And I, I have to say for me, it's, it's just, I am fascinated by writing from the point of view. I've, I've talked about this, I'm sure many times before that I just, I'm fascinated by being able to put myself in the heads of yes. other people. And I don't know, I don't really consider it brave. It's just, I understand that to tell this kind of story, you, you just can't worry about, you've got to keep your own thoughts and goals separate from those of your characters and and I, yes. I they need to do the things they do for the reasons that those characters would do them and i think again i don't i don't consider it courageous but i think this is a stumbling block for other white authors uh, addressing this kind of material where they they just constantly get nervous about what is it going to say about me if i do this and you know mm-hmm. and i just don't really worry about it at least in the writing i'm just worrying about does it feel real to me, you know, do you, would this character do this? And, um, well, and, and I guess let me cut you off by just to say, let me call brave what you just call discipline and, and, and let those things, you know, kind of live in tandem because I, I do, I, I, you know, I thought it reading Lovecraft country. I thought it reading this and it's possibly cause I just think about this stuff a lot. And so just to, you know, to see these characters occupy this world that again, to your point, um, you know, is just meant to be truthful telling of others' stories. And and, and I think and it, that in alone, my apologies for cutting you off, that uh, in alone is a is a is a fateful act to to tell another's story truthfully, you know, with, with minimal sort of impediment from yourself. Um, and the one the one thing I will say though is that, you know, it it, it the thing is too, you've got to be willing to go, you know, I, the, the political narrative, you, you've, people do not, you know, all behave in, in, in accordance with a specific ideology all the time. And, and I think that's, that's where, to me, again, I, I don't necessarily consider it brave, but I, I know it makes other people nervous and sometimes it makes them angry is that I will have characters do things that I think they will do, even if it doesn't fit this narrative of, mm-hmm. of you know, fighting white supremacy. And I, I think the character who probably best exemplifies this and the reactions I've gotten from certain folks is Ruby. Um, yeah. Mm, with her, mm-hmm. 
I am fascinated by her ongoing relationship with Caleb Braithwaite and her, you know, her, um, you know, taking this potion. And basically it's like, you know, she's, she's a dark skinned black woman who in reality would have no chance of passing as white. And now she gets this basically once in a lifetime opportunity just to step away from the difficulties of her life and just, you know, get rid of all these artificial obstacles and she goes for it. And I remember, yeah, when I think Misha Green was commenting on this at one point saying, you know, it's when she read Ruby's story that that was when the story got dangerous. And I, I understand why she phrased it that the way, but my thought is, no, that's just to me, that's when the story becomes realistic in terms of not everybody is pulling in the same direction. That's the beauty of humanity. That's what makes it, you know, the beauty and the terror of humanity is we don't all pull in the same direction. And I, I want to follow people where they would go, um, which is why I'm, I would make a terrible political activist because I'm always thinking about the other point of view and I always want to follow the thread in the way that you wouldn't necessarily go. And so you, you don't want me in charge of your propaganda <laughs> because I'm, I'm going to bring up stuff that you don't want to talk about. And I'm going to yeah, be like, sure. but, but this is really interesting. We should talk about this. So yeah. Um, Note to self, remove Matt from the propaganda arm of uh, the fear of God. <laughs> so, um, uh, we feel good heading into. Oh, heading into, I think it's great. Let's uh, let's remind everybody: February twenty first, uh, Destroy of Worlds is going to hit your shelves and all of your major outlets. Please check it out. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna really love it, especially most especially if you read Lovecraft Country. If you have not read Lovecraft Country, go while you're at it at your local bookstore and pick up a copy of Lovecraft Country and also Destroyer of Worlds and read them because it's wonderful. It's a great time. And this is yeah, this is one other thing I should just make clear that this yeah again it the this book is a sequel to Lovecraft Country the book. <laughs> it is not a sequel to the TV series. And while they there's certainly plenty of overlap. Um, there were also enough changes that I, I think it would be very confusing to come from the series and then go immediately yes. to this book. You'll be like, there are yeah, characters absolutely. with different names and, and you know, in general, just the characterizations are done differently. And again, I, I love right. the TV series. I love what Misha did. And I, I thought it was a perfectly valid and interesting interpretation of the material, but it is a different vision from mine and, and it will really confuse you. Um, if you if you for some reason cannot get a copy of Lovecraft Country, but you know this book is meant to stand on its own, it will tell you what you need to know. Yes. Um, so you don't have to have read the first book first. Obviously, it will be more meaningful if you do. But just just to get that clear just, for everybody. Come on, Matt. They can find a copy of Lovecraft Country. Read the book. I know. <laughs> you, know you know what I'm saying. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. You should it probably can be read Lovecraft Country first, also because it'll be it'll be cheaper in paperback, and you will be able to decide. <laughs> or you can take it from the library, and, and you'll decide if you want to invest in this one. That's so, true. That's hilarious. So about this movie. Nope. Here we are. Uh, Reed, do you remember? Did did Note make the? Oh, we haven't announced the listener. Goodness gracious, y'all! No, this, we haven't yet. Is, so no, uh, we have. I not. am so thankful Reed Lackey is in my life uh, because, <laughs> <laughs> at least as far as the fear of God goes, I would never have. So I would never accomplish anything. Hmm. So, but it's it's probably worth mentioning um, because we haven't even addressed it yet. These films that we're covering last week: Barbarian, this week: Nope. Um, next week, the menu. Stay tuned at the end of the uh, of the episode. Yeah. So, but these films are all represented in the listener voted 
best films, best horror films of 2022. Um, we are going to unveil that list probably in the ultimate episode in this little series. Um, just all at one bang, we'll reveal what that top 10 was. But each of these films are in the top 10 as we march uh, towards. We're not going to be able to cover everything that was in the top 10, but these are some of the highlights from it. So yes, nope, in answer to your question, and as a, a promo to the listeners, yes, this is one of the, uh, as voted on by Fog listeners, one of the best horror films of 2022. Yes. Something something listeners that if you haven't noticed with the last two films we did this, we are trying to make sure we summarize based on a pre-existing uh, <laughs> copy uh, that we did not write um, <laughs> just to launch us into because sometimes we forget to have done that. Uh, so with Nope following their father's shocking death, uh, Hollywood animal wrangler OJ and his sister Emerald begin observing unexplained phenomena on their vast Southern California ranch that leads them down an obsessive rabbit hole as they plot attempts to capture the mystery on camera, along with a former child star turned family theme park ringmaster. That's a, it's quite a path, uh, who neighbors, the siblings, <laughs> the pair's efforts to chase the spectacle soon bring terrifying consequences and unimaginable horror. The result is a complex social tr thriller that unpacks the seeds of violence, risk and opportunism that are inseparable from the romanticized history of the American West and from show business itself. It's a little bit of editorializing there. iTunes. Um, <laughs> nope. Nope. It's here. Um, <laughs> Let's do this. I'm going to start and then go to Matt and then read sure. of just okay. uh, initial takes on this film, because I know generally that kind of out in the world, and I don't mean amongst the three of us necessarily, you know, I wouldn't call no divisive, divisive, what have you. I would say uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty on a certain level. Um, my history that's been mentioned more than once on the show, love, get out. Uh, have seen it several times at this point, um, have only seen us once and doggone it. I really was planning to watch both of them again this week mm. and just did not get to it. Cause I, I am holding, um, us loosely because my first viewings memory is the concept was too high for me. Not as in, I didn't get it, but as in, it was just like, it, it almost breached the ability of accessibility, even though there's some really fantastic visuals and performances. Uh, so I went into Nope a little bit like I love Peel's ideas and energy, even if not every aspect of execution. Let me see what this holds for me. Um, I went to see Nope with my wife, and I think both of us came out a little head scratchy. Um, uh, very knee jerk was really liked a lot of that was a, felt in the, the 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 screening I was in felt a little flabby in the middle. Um me and the movie. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, was interested to kind of revisit uh, because the, the further I got from my first viewing personally, uh, as sort of unsure as I was from that first viewing, the more interested I got in thinking about it, which is kind of a weird phenomena that doesn't often happen for me. And so was really excited to kind of revisit it, not because I was inherently excited about the movie itself, but just excited to see like, okay, what, how do I feel about this now? Um, so I've seen it twice now and I'm not going to say I love it. I am going to say there are some things that I wish were a little different about it, but I love, I do love the, the vastness of it. Uh, like I will tell my experience of it. I watched it on the 
big ass TV. My wife still makes fun of me for getting when we moved into the house we're in. And I did watch it <laughs> on 4K. I did not watch a digital version. I was like, you know what? One of the reasons I wanted to revisit it in the theaters, which I didn't do, was of that, the scope of it. And so mm-hmm. rewatching it in that setting, like it is a beautiful film, um, just visually. So, so, so it has that going for it for me in spades. And I, this might be me right now, but I love Daniel Kaluuya and mm-hmm. this performance. Um, it is a very specific choice, the things he's doing here. And I kind of love it for that. Not necessarily on paper. Hey, you, you know, the, it's a bit more reserved, a bit more strained performance, uh, quite intentionally, even his vocal deliveries, but I saw Nope. I don't know, 12 months after I saw Judas and the Black Messiah. And those, if you put those two performances together, what you discover is, oh my God, this guy is incredible um, because the range present for him. So anyway, long, long winded way of simply saying, I am not ready to say, I love Nope. I am ready to say, I love what Peel generally is interested in and often what he executes. And, and largely in this one, love much of what it executes, even if I still have a few things I would point to as, as quibbles and bits. That's my take, Matt, what is your take on Nope? So actually I, I wanted to start talking just briefly about a, a different, um, there is an actor and producer and who writes her own material named Britt Marling. I don't know if I've talked about her before, but she's, uh-uh. you know, she's done a number of movies, um, but she's probably best known for the series, the OA on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And, I love her stuff. Um, she's, you know, she's really, you know, I, I really like what she does. But the thing about her that I've discovered is that she operates on a totally different creative frequency than I do. I, it's like, I would call it a complementary frequency, but it's different than mine. Which means she's she's constantly making storytelling choices that I, I would never even think to make myself. And... Mm-hmm. This kind of dictates how I have to watch her stuff. That, um, like I, you know, w- with a lot of with a lot of other storytellers, particularly with bad storytelling, but even with good storytelling, there comes usually comes a point where I figure out what game the the person is playing, mm. and then I can start to make predictions about where this is going, and and you know, one of the two or three possibility way of how it's going to end up. And with Marling, I can never do that. I'm mm. I'm constantly like, what? <laughs> so. To watch her, I've, I've got to be in the, the right frame of mind. If I'm tired and don't want to think too hard, then I'll be like, nope, save that for another night. And I will, I, you know, I'm just going to watch Chronicles of Riddick for the millionth time or something like that. You know? <laughs> Not at all where I would have thought you'd go. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, with Jordan Peele, of course, um, when I first saw Get Out, I, I don't know if we had signed contracts yet, but by that point, I knew that he was going to option Lovecraft Country. He, we had spoken wow. on the phone, and you know that was a great phone conversation. It was very clear. We saw eye to eye on Lovecraft Country. We were talking about the same story. We, we liked mm. it for the same reasons. We saw the same potential. And then I did see Get Out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this, you know, again, he's, he's doing exactly what I'm trying to do. It's set in the modern day, but it was like, yeah, this is very much, you know, what I'm trying to do with Lovecraft Country. So I got this impression that he and I were like, you know, peas in a pod, you know, you know, same, same frequency, same vision. And then a couple of years later, I go to see us and 
I went in with this expectation that I was going to see a, a story that I could imagine having come up with myself told in a way I could imagine myself telling it. Mm. And Us is not that. I think it's very good, but it's also odd in, in a way that, you know, again, I had that sort of head scratching thing where I was like, huh. You know, and, and for me, it was it was this puzzlement about why is this not meeting my expectations? Why am, you know, why is this not clicking with me immediately the way Get Out did? And I, I wasn't, you know, is it me or is it the film? And trying to figure that out, you know, Jordan is, of course, known for quote unquote socially conscious horror. So he, he has these sort of political and social themes in the film as subtext and I tend to love that kind of stuff. I do that stuff myself, but I know in my own writing in particular, I, I try to avoid any sort of explicit messaging because at the end of the day, I'm really, I'm a storyteller. I, as I say, I'm not a political activist. And I find that most often the dramatically most interesting choice, the dramatically most effective choice is often not the choice you would make if you're trying to hammer home a specific message. And I, I just never want to confuse those two things. I want to go with the, I want to take the story where it wants to go. And, and, and so I guess with us, part of what I was wondering is, is the subtext here interfering with the text in some way? Is that mm -hmm. what I'm getting? And I would now say definitively the answer is no, that wasn't the problem. The problem was me, but for a long time, I really wasn't sure. And so I, when I went to see Nope, I was, I was very curious, but I was also a little apprehensive. I was like, okay, which Jordan Peele is going to show up here? Who am I going to get? Is it going to be the Jordan of Get Out, who I felt like, you know, brother from another mother? Or is it going to be us, where I'm going to be scratching my head? And mm. so, you know, the movie opens with, you know, the, the you hear the sound of what is apparently a television playing some sort of sitcom, and then the laughter kind of degenerates into screaming, mm. and then there's a quote from the Book of Nahum, Mm -hmm. It was one of these minor Old Testament prophets whose name I only know because in Sunday school we did that thing where you've got to memorize all the names yep. of the books of the Old Testament in order. So, you know, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, yada, 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 Nahum. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and then the opening image is this TV studio appears to be and there's a body on the floor and there's this chimpanzee in a striped shirt and short pants with blood on its face and on its knuckles and I'm like and I had avoided spoilers going into this but I knew mm. from the trailer that this is a movie about you know horse ranchers black right. horse ranchers in California and some sort of UFO encounter and I'm looking at this and I'm like <laughs> this is the opening to the UFO movie, you know, and, and I'm right away. I'm like, okay, I'm in us territory. But then I just, you know, I, I didn't try to fight it and I didn't try to anticipate it. I just went with it and I ended up really liking the film. Mm -hmm. um, I did have to watch it twice to really feel like I, I got what, what, what was going on, but one of the things I, I discovered is that, yes, I had made this category error. I had made this assumption that, you know, on the on this juxtaposition of Lovecraft Country and Get Out, that Jordan and I were on the exact same page. And now I realize, no, um, what's going on is Jordan, kind of like Britt Marling, is on this sympathetic but different frequency. He's, mm -hmm. he's His stuff works for me, but it's we're, we've each got our own thing and our own mm -hmm. way of looking at stuff. And... 
that you know obviously impacts how I how I look at his is how I have to read his his stuff and and so yeah I did go back and watch us again with this new knowledge and I was like oh yeah I was the problem I was trying to watch this movie <laughs> on the Matt Ruff frequency and that doesn't work and that's mm-hmm. what I, I was fighting it rather than I was trying to view it on my terms rather than its own terms which is like the mm-hmm. the cardinal sin of a reviewer right but. But you know, an understandable mistake, I guess. But now it's like, oh yeah, it's like once I once I realized that I, I went back and watched Dustin, like, oh yeah, this really works. And now I get why he made these choices. And I, it's sort of now the movie works for me, and I I I, I just feel silly that I didn't see it the first time through. And of course, the big irony that only struck me when I was thinking about what I was going to talk about in the show is that, of course, this is one of the big themes of Nope itself of the the perils of thinking you understand a thing when you don't. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this is one of the many different meanings of the title. It's like, yes, you think you know what you're dealing with, but nope, you don't. Yeah. Um, nope. It's, it's not a flying saucer. It's an animal. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not the kind of animal you can tame and make friends with. It's a predator that you've got to respect. And so, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of the gift of this movie is like now I know how to watch Jordan Peele movies and I'm really excited because honestly given a choice between someone who does things the way I do and somebody who does things in a a totally different way or or a you know not a totally different way but a, a way that is unique and original in its own self that still speaks to me that's much more interesting and so I'm sure. psyched but yeah yeah so no. um that was no. my that was my big first impression. I was like, oh gosh, this is great. <laughs> yeah. So um, I I, th- I feel like I'm uh, probably a little antithetical to what to what you and Nathan have just described. So obviously, I loved Get Out. Get Out was a very watershed moment for a lot of different reasons. Um, and and still, I think you know is 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 kind of Jordan Peele's primary you know must watch. That was his first shot across the bow. Um, mm-hmm. But then, but I responded more um, positively to us than most of my peers and most of the other people that I talked to. When I first saw us, I loved us. And I, I still haven't been able to, I mean, we did a whole episode about it, and I still haven't been able to quite articulate why it resonated so much to me. Something about dual natures and something about, you know, mirror possibilities and things just really ignited my imagination. But I loved us. I also, not for nothing, it's super scary. So I, you know, really got down with that. Um, so yeah, loved us when we went into Nope, uh, my wife and I were eager. We were like, oh man, Jordan Peele's got a new movie coming out. We're going to, we're there. And when we were in the theater, you know, Nope has a more deliberate energy than either of his Mm -hmm. previous two films. Mm -hmm. It takes its time. It's patient. It's got open spaces and it's got open scenes. There's a lot of, you know, things that are just sort of extended out. It's not. I don't want to give the impression that I thought it was a Terrence Malick film or anything, but it, is just, it just breathes and it is more open than his previous two films. And that took a little bit of calibration. Uh, also, it's not that scary. Now, I'm not saying it's not scary at all, um, but, it, but it's not really a horror film. I mean, we're, we're covering it. And I, I, I mean, I 
am not going to argue on this show, especially that like, no, it doesn't belong in the horror genre. There's definitely horrific elements, but when you compare it to Get Out and Us, there's a significantly different sort of tone and flavor to what we get with Nope, even though there are some elements that are absolutely still genre. Um, so that took a little bit of calibration. When we walked out, um, I won't speak for my wife, but I think there was a lot of not not only just head scratching, but disappointment. Where it's like, oh man, like I don't, I don't know that I really get this. Like I'm not quite sure that I'm on the wavelength. Hear a lot of you know reports and 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 hear a lot of uh, sort of critical analysis of it that made it really interesting. And I will say for the second viewing going through, the things that I appreciate. I appreciate significantly more about it. I actively, here's one thing that shocked the heck out of me. Through the first viewing of it, I was kind of, at a certain point, kind of dragging myself through part of it. I'm not saying I was bored or anything, but just like I felt the length and I felt some of those scenes where I was like, okay, like move on with it. What are, what are we doing? Um, what was fascinating to me is that the second time through felt much more propulsive to me. I knew what was going on. I knew kind of where we were headed and ironically, in my mind, like it felt tighter and more cohesive the second time through that I didn't have some of the mystery chasing of like, ooh, what's going on here and what's going on there. I was able to just sort of flow with the, like I was able to pick up on things like in the early scene where he's talking with his dad before his dad dies and there's a radio playing and they talk about hitchhikers that have disappeared from the rocks and, and, and huh. like they never came back from that from the that. hike. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Of course they did, because they got sucked up by the thing in the cloud. Like, of course they did. Of course they disappeared. So, uh, again, applauding the intention, applauding the the cohesive nature of it, I think it is a film that over time is going to grow in esteem uh, for me, even though I did still feel like, you know, like, wow, that yeah, he took his time stretching some of these beats out a little bit further. Um, I just, I, I was glad, and to a degree, for this conversation relieved that I was like, no, 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 my appreciation elevated for it, um, for what it was intentionally doing, for what it was deliberately doing. I still don't know. Well, I'll say this as a button on the whole thing. I was about to say, I still don't know if I've wrapped my head around all that it means, but I do think, cause some of my favorites are Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling, of course, Stephen King, but he doesn't really fit in what I'm about to describe because of the kind of work that Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling did there's a lot of this sort of like, what's the metaphor? What's the what's the undercurrent, undercurrent? What's the social commentary? What's all of that? And Bradbury and Serling both wrote things that were just like, these are just human people doing human things. And there's not some big, rich, deep, oh, take this and, and have a platform and let's shake up civilization with it. They wrote a lot of things that were like that. But then they also wrote a lot of things that were just like, no, this was just a a burst from my creative energy that was just about how I'm frustrated by being a pedestrian or something like that. And so there's a way in which I want to not with Jordan Peele's overall work, there's a way in which I'm kind of excited if he were to do even two or three more films or however many he wants, where it's just like, no, 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 this is, this is not necessarily pointing to a myriad of different complex social structures. This is merely just, born of a, a, a more deliberate thing. Like I really got a lot from this one about what's already been mentioned. Matt, I think it was you who mentioned this, that was like, yeah, like you can't, you can't control animal behavior. Like you think you understand this, you think you can overcome it and, and to a degree manipulate it. And you find out far too late that you can't like, you're yeah. not operating on the same frequency. Um, that really stood out to me. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to have, 
not that that's not a deep meaning, but it doesn't necessarily have to have a whole bunch of socio-political things. That's a really compelling concept on its own. And I think I just appreciated it more for, for that wavelength as it was. Well, so, yeah. It's funny you how you described that experience, Reed, because if I felt any deflation in the first viewing in the theater, it was um, – Part of it is is marketing, and we can kind of blame a little bit of that. But but there's always with a movie like this, a uh, high genre brand name like he's developed and established this like ooh, what is the not even so much twist, but like what is what is the reveal? What's gonna be the big right. thing? <laughs> and now to his credit, I love the cons- huh. <laughs> I just called it the Shyamalan curse that it's like everybody, you know, yeah, <laughs> not sure. the same filmmakers, yeah. but yeah. yeah, no. Um, but I do love, and I love when it got revealed in the film, the first time I saw it, the, 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 the plot beat that it is not itself a flying object that houses a, a creature. It is itself the creature. So I loved that. But in the movie screening and the first uh, time watching it, once that gets revealed, then there was this energy deflation on my part in the first viewing. However, and and why I appreciate how you described or, or your description of, of your second viewing, this weird kind of thing happened for me, this viewing where I was like, I just enjoy watching this. I just enjoy looking yes. at this to the really nerdy confession point that there were moments where I just stood like to get closer to the TV to just like look. And it was just, I don't yeah. know. It was, a, it was, it is, I can't recall a, 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 a movie I've had that experience with, but just this weird feeling of like, because to your point, Reed, I would I would still say the imagery in it is enough to push it into quote unquote horror category, but you're sure. not wrong. It's not very suspenseful. Like it's mm-hmm. not even that like thrilling. It's not, um, you know, oh my, it's not urgent. Um, and no, so if, if you're expecting that, you're going to yes. be confused yeah. and maybe disappointed and if sure. you don't yes. realize that again if you don't realize the problem is your own expectations then you're going to come out of the movie and go like oh what was that yeah absolutely yes. absolutely everything true. everything from the pacing which yeah it's like the first time i was watching it i'm like is this seems a little slow mm-hmm. but the second time i'm like no it's not it's right. it's taking exactly the time that it needs but it's it's yeah and and one of the things i'm thinking i'm wondering is too is that Get Out feels different, but I think part of the reason maybe Get Out feels different is because it was his first motion picture. Hmm. I think he may have had to rein in his natural instinct a little bit and made like I, this is not an original thought for me, but I, I you know I was listening to somebody described it as a crowd pleaser. Mm-hmm. Like it's designed, it's 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 the kind of thing that that is designed specifically to to you know appeal to a wide audience. I don't know how much that's true or how much it's just that that the way the story is set up, but. It just may well be that with Nope and with and with us, he's he's because he's because he's made this incredibly, you know, successful first film, now he can basically just relax into his more natural style of, of storytelling that without, sure. you know, worrying as much about pacing it the way a film like that is quote unquote supposed to be paced. And sure. yeah. um so yeah, I and I, I can totally sympathize with that too, though, that that yeah, there's I've had this in my own with my own work. It's just sometimes you get people, you know, you, the, the most frustrating kind of review is when they've misunderstood what you're trying to do. Mm, um, mm-hmm. 
And I think one thing that where I often come across purpose is because I'm a minister's son, you know, I'm an apostate, mm-hmm. but still I, <laughs> I have this, I have this religious background. I'm comfortable talking about God and religion. And so mm-hmm. like my novel, The Mirage, it's built as an alternate history. It is, but it's not about, you know, exploring alternate pathways in history or different way history could have, could have, you know, evolved. It's very, it's more specifically about focusing on, a different religious viewpoint, a different moral viewpoint about the Middle East. And if you don't get that, if you're expecting, you know, the sort of grognards, you know, you know, really, really, you know, historians wet dream kind of thing, you're, you're going to misunderstand what I'm doing and you're Mm -hmm. not going to get it. And so, yeah, it's, and I, I think that's the thing is like, the second viewing of, of Nope and the second viewing of us, I, it, it was like I, I was locked in and I started to get where it was going and it just worked. And it was like, yeah. okay, yeah, mm-hmm. these things that didn't feel, that maybe didn't feel quite properly tuned again, that was just me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, that's so, very, that's very uh, Taylor Swift of you, Matt. I appreciate your, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm the well, problem. It's me. Well, um, well, let's do this. Well. Let's, um, in the spirit of. <laughs> talking about things that's a good song it's a great song uh, i've played heard it yeah, a million it times a in my house. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this uh let's jump into uh the part of the show where we discuss things that aren't just wrong but um which might be said that ain't right sure as hell ain't right um you know let's let's tip our hat here tip our cowboy hat is there a name for what a cowboy hat actually is i don't know uh cowboy hat stetson that's the word i was looking for thank you uh 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 towards some of the horrific elements here before we maybe um you know uh kick down some thematic doors so matt you are our guest uh um although at this point we we you know i don't I consider myself family. I'm just I'm just, you know, I know, I know. But in the spirit of it, one last time, you can go first on that ain't right. What would you say for you is that that ain't right? Um, I mean, for me, it, it's got to be um, the the poor, unfortunate um, young gal who got her face chewed off by the monkey. Oh you know, and the, the, he does a really great job of teasing the visual on that, where you know it, the the scene where yeah, she's sitting in the stands and she's wearing a t-shirt with her youthful whole face on it yeah. and then she's got this gauzy veil in front of her face which oh, interestingly I, I believe the veil is the same color as the tablecloth um, oh wow that is hanging down wow. that the, that, that, looks that, through. that yeah that young Stephen yen was looking through when the when the monkey is looking at him and i that's it, it, something else wow that, that that that's something that's one of the many little details that i noticed on the second viewing where i was like oh yeah and 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 then there's a point where the wind makes it flutter up and you just get this mm-hmm. glimpse of what it looks like when, you know, and that's the thing about chimps that I, I just have a particular horror for the stories I've heard about. Mm-hmm. They, what a sentence. I mean, they, that, you could have just stopped there. That's the thing about chimps. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they mutilate their, they don't just kill you. They mutilate you. They bite wow. off fingers. They bite off faces. Ugh. And, um, yeah. you know, it's just why, well, there's a, there's actually a show I used to a, a, a documentary I used to watch called Fatal Attractions and it's all about people who keep things that animals as pets that should not be kept as pets. And, oh wow! 
you know, and it's, yeah, they've, they've everything from monitor lizards to, you know, uh, to, yes, to apes. And then, you know, there was one story I loved about a woman who fed the bears and one night they just broke into her cabin and ate everything, including her. Oh, oh my so, God. Oh yeah, my gosh. So, <laughs> so at well, least the show lives up to its name, you know? Yeah, yeah. no, but it is, it is. Yeah. And, and, but yeah, the chimps in particular are just the things they'll do to you. I mean, granted, you know, the monitor lizard one haunts me too. It's a guy because they, they do this thing where they, they bite you and their, their jaws have, you know, they just have horrible bacteria in their mouths. So the idea is they bite you. They wait for the, the animal they've bitten to get sick. They'll follow it. And when you slow down enough, then they, that's when they eat you. And so this oh, guy oh basically, gosh. he was keeping monitor lizards in an apartment. They gave him salmonella. He got sick. He passed out and then they ate him. Oh my gosh. Oh, God. So, you know what I say to that? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. Yeah. It's, so, it's very in keeping with the themes of this movie. But chimps <laughs> are, chimps yep. are particularly horrific in, in what they do to people. And that's, yeah. I, although, you know, yeah. <laughs> so oh, that golly. Yeah. Um, um, Nathan, do you want to go? Uh, sure. What? I'll go. What? I'll go. Uh, what? Hmm? Okay. Uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's. There's so many places to talk about here because Matt, what you're, this isn't my, that ain't right. But what you're making me think of and even describing the Gordy stuff as horrific as that is like, what's pretty damn impressive about this movie is he is able to, um, in a way, a quote unquote, big tent blockbuster, you know, populist film might not otherwise be able to at least paint some pretty interesting pictures with his characters. And what I'm thinking of is adult young, describing the SNL sketch because he's so traumatized. He can't talk about the real thing and is passing off this story as the way. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a, a wild scene. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Chris Catan would make a heck of a chimp, Mr. <laughs> Peepers. Um, but uh, for me, there's a number of that ain't rights in this movie. The one I'm going to pick is I think maybe the moment that I stood up and rewound a little bit just to take in the full scope. And it is once OJ is driving back from, I don't remember exactly what. And the, the creature is above the house. Yes. This mm -hmm. shot is incredible. Uh, and this is what I mean by the, what's fascinating about this movie is it's just enjoyable to literally look at like oh, they, yeah. they are, you know, painting art in, uh, in, in their, uh, images here. But from a, that ain't right standpoint, this, this massive creature is above this beautiful house. I love, I love this house. Um, and, uh, one of the things I would list on a likes, dislike on a likes list, um, uh, is the sound editing in this film. Uh, the mm -hmm. sound design rather is, is pretty incredible. And so you've got this image of this giant disc shaped monster looming above a giant, ranch house in the night while rain is pouring down its sides because it is umbrellaing the house itself who then is accompanied by this orchestra of screams from yeah. all the people that are still uh lodged inside its its windpipe as it were God. then did y'all catch this there's just a stop yeah and then it wriggles and then it just ejects mm -hmm. all yeah. of this nasty expulsion uh blood guts viscera metal shards and objects onto that i mean it is crazy to watch that scene so i think for me 
the the overarching is that sequence, but also just the haunting uh, uh, sound design of the people <laughs> screaming while this thing is orbiting above them. And at that point, they've been in there. They've been in the belly of the whale for at least a couple of hours. It seems oh, like yes. so that was yeah. It's mm-hmm. like that's yeah. It's like it's kind of merciful when it convulses and you get that they're all dead now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had all that time to realize they are not coming home. <laughs> like, yeah. Lord have mercy. Um, so, um, what I'll do is is certainly lighter fare than than some of that. I mean, there's certainly a there's, there's certainly a, uh, a that's a, a low bar. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I uh, like certainly there's lots of conceptual things that don't involve the creature, like all of the ideas of the ways people can leverage animal behavior for spectacle that you know there the tmz guy there's all kinds of different places that we can go but i will say from first viewing and from second viewing it still stood out to me i was like one of the truly more like traditional horror centric scenes in this film are those dumb kids in that barn oh, yes. freaking like yes. when with the owl mask oh, on yeah. And when he's to, and and I love Kaluuya's performance there, where he's just like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> he's like, he's he's not he's not yelling or anything. He's just scaled back. He Didn't keeps he punch the one out? camera. Oh, he does because what happens yeah. is he's got the camera on one of them, That's and right. then one homeboy just like glides down or is like hanging down from the side. Yeah. So when Kaluuya sees him, he punches him right in the face. Um, but that whole sequence that in the theater too, we were my wife in and I first were like, viewing oh. when you still think it's all real. That's a terrifying. Scene. Oh. Very yeah. scary. Yeah. Very, but even in the second viewing, when I knew like these are just kids, it's still like, oh my god, it's still very visceral. Um, so yeah, that whole barn sequence of Practical Jokers, I was like, man, that is, it ain't right. <laughs> it's they, so they, ain't right. they were uh, my my other thought is these kids are really lucky they didn't get shot because oh you, yes, you pull that in most American ranches, you're asking for trouble. Exactly. Well, one hundred percent. But I just want to echo something else that you said earlier, Nathan, that, yeah, I, I really appreciated Kaluto's performance. He does this, you know, he's just he's just a guy who does not talk a lot. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. You know, his sister is like the motor mouth and he is the polar opposite. You know, he's just completely, you know, he doesn't he doesn't need to constantly be talking and and but he emotes you know beautifully but it's yeah and it's very much a choice obviously so it's yeah. a, well, yeah, it's a great performance i did have the the luxury of uh watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and he's talking about some of those choices and he says that he he had never ridden a horse so he had like a month to learn how to ride a horse and and actually learning how to ride the horse helped informed his performance choices because he said two correctly do this and i i think i've ridden a horse like once and it's been decades ago at this point mm-hmm. so i don't really i wouldn't have remembered this but he's like in order to accurately safely with skill learn how to ride a horse it requires almost supernatural stillness like a very mm-hmm. still calm quiet demeanor and and basically he said this guy has grown up around this like he naturally would have this kind of stillness this kind of kind of mm. silence about his person that is very restrained and interior. So kind of loved that. That's great. Um, it also helps explain why the sister got cut out probably. Yeah. Cause she is yeah. not that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that friends and foggers has been the part of the show where we discuss things that aren't just wrong, but of which might be said that ain't right. 
sure as hell ain't right. Um, I've got a thematic question that I want to pose. Um, that that both times, um, I don't know that it pinged for me as much the first viewing, except in considering it after the fact, and and I definitely was watching it with this in mind this time, and so. You know, feel the freedom. Um, we can discuss this for a few minutes if we want to, and then and then throw in uh, other ideas in the hat, depending on how short or long this goes. But in the Stetson, I mean, um, <laughs> what do y'all? Th- so, you know that feeling when you're watching a movie and or, or reading a story, whatever, and you're like, I know there's thoughtfulness, I know there's intention, and and some of it's a little bit elusive to me, but I know it's there, and so I kind of respect it for that, and and. Nope has some of that for me. Um, and one of those is what feels like a theme is, as has already been pointed to, controlling the uncontrollable. You know, we see it. Gordy is a metaphor for the the, the big monster itself um, of just, uh, uh, you know, they they tried to to domesticate this chimp. It, it goes horribly, horribly awry um, years later. That same character, Stephen Young's character, um, you know, basically capitalizes on his five minutes of fame and creates this little town uh, that he now kind of has this like wrangly wrangling sort of uh, show that invites the monster to reveal itself. So thus this theme of 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 domestication and of of taming the untamable. My question to you all from a thematic standpoint is, is it a is it asynchronous at all to that theme? that the creature dies at the end. Does it have uh, like hmm. there feels like through the story of Gordy, this you're, we weren't supposed to do this, what we did to him. Mm-hmm. And so now it's kind of forced our hand. We don't sympathize with the people who have to take him out. We understand in this case, the need. So we've, we're, our, we forced our own hands here and, and now they have to dispatch this chimp Gordy and so it feels like part part of me wrestles with like, is there a, and I'm not stating it. I am genuinely asking the question to y'all as y'all watch this. Did it ping for you at all? Did it register for you at all? Like, is that story choice at odds with that theme or, or not at all? And I'm just kind of reading too much into that. Does that make sense? What I'm trying yeah, I, to ask? I understand why you ask it, but the, the difference is that Gordy didn't choose to be where he was. Mm-hmm. If right. a chimpanzee breaks into my house and comes at me and I've got a gun, I'm going to shoot the chimpanzee. Yes. And I'm not going to yeah. feel bad about it. And the same sure. thing if a if a tiger takes up residence in my neighborhood. Again, it's exactly. like it's unfortunate that you have to kill it, but <laughs> it makes sense that you would. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would echo exactly what Matt said. It's like the, the big key difference here is that they did not. Now, to your point there's a certain teasing in the narrative that this creature was here and Stephen Ewan's character sort of offering up horse after horse to it made it feel territorial and made it feel, you know, so, so maybe there's sure. a conversation to be had there, but in terms of, you know, OJ and Emerald and, and their presence on this ranch. No, I, I definitely did not feel like, they had a responsibility to let the creature cohabitate or to let the creature sort yeah, of be, you know, yeah. yeah, that it's like, no, 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 you, you got to take this thing out because it, otherwise it will <laughs> like everything else that keeps coming through it. Um, I like Matt's analogy that it's like, no, 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 this, this, this is our place. This is our, this is our physical space that we were in. 
Um, and, and, and so if it comes into that, I don't think it's, you know, unacceptable to just be like, no, nope, <laughs> you, you're not, you're not permitted to be here. Um, I, I, yeah, I also think that if that were the intention that we would have learned how it got there, the mm, fact that mm-hmm, we're not, mm. we're not told means that that can't, that, you know, it doesn't seem to me likely to be the answer. If yeah. you're specifically trying to say, if you were talking about even, even the idea that you're impinging on, you know, an, an existing feeding ground, but again, they've got the, the family's got this history going back, you know, generations. So it's sure. like, no, yep. that it's Decades, their place. Yeah. yeah so exactly. if that says to me that no, that's that's not an intention. Um, you can yeah. still, you know, obviously, can still mourn the fact that that this sort of thing happens, but um, yeah. I, I don't think that's the the intention of the the story. And I do so think there's I guess a. I, I'm oh, sorry. To, I, no, I no, guess no. Yeah. to to linger there a little bit. Am I? over connecting Gordy and the monster then I, I mm-hmm. guess I guess that's what I'm struggling a little bit with is just like okay well and and nothing about this sticking point impedes my enjoyment of it like I said I actually love the watching of it I, I guess as I've tried to wrangle down okay what do I think is going on what do I think some of this stuff means it's possible you know I'm I'm just over reading but um it, it feels intentional that beast we attempted to domesticate turns its back on you know kind of attacks us uh, mm-hmm. uh the fatal attraction uh and and we have to put it down you're not wrong matt for noted for pointing out that distinction and, and that wasn't something i had in view now i'm just trying to figure out okay well do i just let it go are these meant to be echoes of each other at all or or not really well, I, I definitely well, think they are but the connection lies in again humans misunderstanding what they're dealing with it's not in the things themselves right. like that it's two flavors okay. of the same mistake as i guess the way i put it and something that i would some, something that i would highlight cuz cuz it's really easy there's no diminutive criticism here it's really easy to focus on gordy and um the the extraterrestrial being the monster, that's yeah, in the creature. sky the monster um, but it must not be forgotten that the actual chapter headings of the film are the horses and the horses sure. and their relationship in the narrative itself are not inconsequential. Like the, the, the horses, um, by the fact that, you know, we are given their names as the individual narrative breaks before what happens happens. And I feel like one of the things I got from it this time around is not only, this is not to dismiss or to to downplay the you can't control the uncontrollable, but also about your relationship with the natural world. So let's look at Gordy for a second. Like Gordy is a predatory kind of animal, an uncontrollable animal that they tried to make the butt of a joke for, you know, like basically right. that that's how I'm not saying that the 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 film implies that Gordy was pervasively mistreated on set. No, but, I understand what but, you're saying. But, but yeah, they 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 kind of tried to just use him for comic relief. Well, then you have this creature in the sky. Well, the creature in the sky is merely, you know, surviving, but it is doing so by sucking up literally every organic thing that it can, and that's how it survives. Well, y- you are going to be at odds. <laughs> I don't feel ethically compromised to say like if if you are going to do nothing but eat me. I can either exit sure. or, or take you out. Like that's, you know, like that's basically the the choice we have here. But I think it's significant that one of the final shots we have in the film is of OJ on that horse in that and and you know, he's riding Lucky still, right? Lucky is who he's on yeah. at the end. So 
he's on Lucky. Like, like OJ has a relationship with these animals. And, you know, we, we don't get big diet because it's not his character, but it would, it would ring false anyway. We don't get big diatribes about his relationship with these animals, but we see it, you know, when he doesn't just abandon Lucky. He's like, got to go get Lucky out. Like, got to feed him. You know, like, he's he's got a relationship with these animals. And I feel like there are three different sort of interplays there. There's the Gordy model, which is leverage and manipulation. We're going to try to take an animal and leverage and manipulate it for our purposes. There's the creature model, which is, you know, you, you all, the best you can hope for is maybe to capture a photograph of it, but you are not you are not going to engage in dialogue with this quick. thing. <laughs> Basically, yeah, you this is there's none of that. But then there's the opportunity and the possibility with the I don't want to read too much into it, but with the appropriate care, with the appropriate respect, with the appropriate perspective to actually have a relationship with the animals. They understand the horses. I get no impression whatsoever that the horses are mistreated at Haywood Ranch. They no. are they yeah. are they are very loved, they are very cared for and uh, and I think that's significant. I think you see these interplays and and the film did strike out to me about just our relationship with the natural world. Things to your point earlier Matt about like things that we think we understand but realize to our peril that we don't understand them. Right. Um, but there is a way that we can enter into relationship with these animals, um, that they are not mistreated, and that um, we can actually just cohabitate, that we can exist together. Um, I'm not again. I'm not saying that Nope is a PETA ad or something, but I but I am saying that like you know that, that yeah, there Peter, is Peter an doesn't interplay. believe in keeping horses either. <laughs> no, 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 they don't exactly. But I you know but uh, wrapping it up so that I don't belabor it is just that yeah I I did. I do think the inclusion of the horses is significant and that it's really easy to interplay Gordy and the creature, rightfully so, because they're present and prominent in the film. But the horses, I think, communicate a third way, if you will, or an alternative to how we can relate to the natural world that is not insignificant in the narrative of this film. And, and one other thing, I mean, it's true, OJ doesn't talk about this, but the way that the, the, the film talks about it is there's a point where... Uh, it's Holst, right? Is the name of the filmmaker. Yes. He's his his idea as well. Yeah, to draw the creature, let's let some horses out. And Angel mm-hmm. at that point, the the Fry Electronics guy is the one who speaks up and says, "No, that's not an option. These are horse people. They're they're never going to agree yeah. to that. Never going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, I absolutely think that's true. And so yeah, I I feel like it's presenting those different uh, like going back to Gordy for just a second. Um, I do find it poignant, kind of sad that like. Gordy's relationship with Steve Yoon's character is such that when he sees him, now with the first time we see that shot where Gordy turns and looks at the camera, we're like, hell no, uh-uh, no, like yeah. he's looking at the camera, it's scary. Yep. But then Gordy approaches him and reaches out to do the fist bump again. He doesn't see that kid as a threat. He sees that kid as like, oh yeah, we did the thing, you know, like... Again, mm-hmm. it's not as if Steven Yoon had bonded with this with Gordy, but Gordy had an association that sure. was like, oh no, this this kid is, you know, we do this fun thing, you know, and and again, that strikes me as significant um, when talking about our relationship with the natural world, both things we understand enough to engage in a domestic relationship with, and things that we don't understand and need to approach more cautiously and respectfully than we too often do. Well, and in the spirit of that, even one of Keith David's lines in the flashback that's that's late 
as he says, some animals ain't fit to be trained. Mm-hmm. But Reed, I, I mean, I think you, you, I was, I was tripping over a little bit, uh, clearly, but you know, OJ on horseback is so emblematic an image, which honestly is, is the icon of the film itself, which is the Haywood, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, kind of logo, um, uh, mm-hmm. the filmed thing, um, as sort of exemplar of, of some of those ideas. So no, I, I, I can, I can sort of see that. Um, what else did, did y'all have? Matt, was any other majors that kind of jumped out at you that you wanted to bring I, up? Well, I, I mean, it seems to me one of the other the other things, too, is this this desire for fame. And I yeah. think there's a line I actually wrote down <clears> so I get it right when, when the first time they call host on the phone and he says, you know, horse girl, this dream you're chasing, the one where you end up at the top of the mountain, all eyes on you, it's the dream you never wake up from. Mm. And... On some level, this, this film is also about this, yeah, this, this culture we live in where everybody wants to, you, you want the shot, you want the Oprah shot, and mm-hmm. you're willing to do ridiculous and perhaps, you know, life ending things to get it. And, right. um, I'm still sort of figuring out exactly what is, you know, what that's about. And I suspect it ties into the choice of the quote from Nam, which is another thing I don't quite understand yet, but, um, yeah. That 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 book of prophecy specifically is like a warning about the destruction of Nineveh, and you know, that there is one interesting thing too about the Nineveh thing. I, I was looking back that the, there's a line in um, the it, it's a couple it's a couple verses after the one that's quoted at the beginning of the film where it, he's talking about Nineveh, and he's, he, he it's like, are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the modern translation but the king james version the the name for thebes is no the name of the city is no oh and, um, oh wow yeah 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 and something about this yeah this proud city that's going to be brought down by god and so somehow i i just I, in a way i have not quite rocked yet this is you know about that too and and of course, ironically, it's it's Holst who, who warns the girl about the perils of this, who ends up climbing a mountain to get the shot, knowing it's going to cost him his life. And, yeah. Um, well, it's it's funny you bring up that line, Matt, because two notes there. One on the Nahum, uh, I, I did write it down. I'll cast abominable filth that you make you vile, but the thing that stands out to me is make you a spectacle. And yeah. That feels mm-hmm. an important word overarching the ideas in this movie. But with Holst's line of um we, do you still have it at oh, the yeah, ready sure. that you can quote it we don't deserve uh, the impossible or uh no it's no. it's uh this dream you're chasing the one where oh. you end up at the top of the mountain all eyes on you it's the dream you never wake up from so that piece the dream you never wake up from again and some of this uh, uh behind the scenes stuff peel talks about that being a hook line the dream you never wake up from as he was writing it and specifically applying it to uh steven yun's character like this this kid who had the spectacle applied to him who was party to spectacle applied to gordy who was traumatized by that but then went on to peak fame and kid sheriff uh and then never woke up from the dream right Mm -hmm. uh and so just i don't know it's what is kind of impressive about this movie and and perhaps peel in this and maybe in both the others and, and growing into is, is this ability to toggle the, the rich themes with the pretty straightforward narrative story too. I did think Reed, you would, you would enjoy this just, just 
from our history with the show and whatever, they talk about Nope as Jaws in the sky. Like it's, oh, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rever- uh, yeah, that, um, that occurred to me too. And, and particularly, yeah. the, particularly the ending. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. they blow up the barrel. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, 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 basically. Yeah, no, it's... <laughs> it, it, a, but the shot is not from a gun. It's from a photo. It's from a mm-hmm. camera. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And well, and uh, the other thing that's interesting too is just that, like, basically they positioned the creature to kill itself. Like, they didn't kill the creature it's sure. the creature's yeah, own yeah, appetite yeah. Yeah. that that they That's positioned fair, yeah. it to to destroy itself um there's, in other there's words, one... they understood they understood what it would do and use that against it yeah yes exactly they were like it's gonna go after this and this will hurt it um i don't even know if if emerald knew at the moment that this will actually take it out but this you know her lines <laughs> it's gonna f you up you know but uh, the last thing that I'll mention, I don't think it's going to take us into a bunch of divergent paths, and maybe after this we can go to the fog meter and wind down. Um, but I was very compelled by OJ's line again. He's like, you know, is there a word? For, they got a word for a bad miracle. Yeah. And I was great. trying to think. It's a it's a wonderful line, and I don't want to cheapen the line by actually trying to, you know, definitively answer it. But I but I was thinking about that because I was thinking about like, well, would spectacle apply to that? I don't think that really applies. I thought about the word catastrophe. You know, I thought, you know, does that really apply? And I'm not, you know, building to a button where I actually landed on a word, but I do think that concept is interesting of just like a bad miracle, something that is outside the norm of our limited understanding and, you know, capable of bringing devastation and capable of bringing, um, you know, profound trauma or, 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 you know, dismay. Um, but I do think piggybacking on what Matt was saying about the chase for fame is, you know, I think it is, you know, perhaps a cheap button to put, but, but worthy of consideration and time is there's a whole lot of people who are looking for their moment in the sun, if you will, Uh, not necessarily a whole bunch of people looking for like massive success or fame or anything, but looking for that, like one legacy moment, uh, looking for that one thing that's just like, okay, this is going to this is going to plant my flag. This is going to be what I'm remembered for. This is going to be what I'm known for. And I did find it really interesting that, you know, in the language of the film, the chasing we do to try to find the Oprah shot, you know, the TMZ guy towards the end, like that's as he is about to literally just get devoured. He's just like, where's my camera? Where's my camera? You know, like, it's like, that's all. That's that it, such a wild sequence. Gosh, the oh, design of that. It's so good. crazy. It's crazy. Um, but uh, but it it was in a beneficial way to me. It was um, nice to to just sort of pause and be like, okay, all right. Uh, there's more value to a harmonious relationship to the world around you yeah. than there is to constantly trying to chase the spectacle. And of course, that Nahum quote at the at the beginning is deliberate and intentional as this film is. Probably a lot of richness to be mined there, but just. Uh, the ways that uh, you know we can make what do we say about spectacle when somebody is misbehaving or or um, yeah. acting you know unfair in public or something like that we say they have made a spectacle of themselves you know it's very it's got a very sort of negative connotation to say like yeah you are you're you're being performative in a way that rings hollow that does not reflect well on you. Um, and and sure there are things that we call spectacular that we say is praiseworthy. Because that's you know uh, got some attraction and some some bigness to it, uh, for lack of a, 
a better way to put it. But it, it just wrapping it up because I, I get a little wordy. Uh, it's just it. It I walked away thinking this time, like, yeah, I, my responsibility is to have the most harmonious relationship I can with the world around me. Um, that means being intentional and deliberate with my relationship with the natural world, respecting things I should, you know, <laughs> maybe not toy around with or or mess around with flippantly and glibly. Um, at the same time, uh, don't necessarily at my own peril pursue these things which I think are going to, um, you know, push me forward. And rather to prize or to cherish or even just to to recognize uh, the value in just having a, a harmonious relationship with the world around me. That was one of the things that I took away from, specifically in the relationship that OJ has with the horses on the ranch and how OJ is able, better than anybody else, it cannot be lost that like OJ figures out it's not a ship. OJ figures out not to look it in the eyes. Like it's OJ's relationship with the animals that that he has um, known for so long that positions him to be able to navigate what's going on. It's because he's just in a zone and a mindset to mm-hmm. know how to engage with the natural world in a way that is more harmonious. And I think that's not insignificant. That 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 means something, especially in contrast to so many of the characters around him. So that was my big takeaway. One, one little note I'll just add, because I, I don't have it right in front of me now, but um, in, in the King James Bible, they don't use the word spectacle. The word is gazing stock. I will make of you a gazing stock, which I wow. thought was, yeah, it's wow. you know, like laughing stock, but gazing stock, something that you, yeah, yeah. That everyone looks at. So, yeah, you're on display, you're helpless, but you can't, but you're, it's not a, it's not a pedestal promotion. <laughs> it's not, it's not the kind of thing that people would aspire to inhabit or, or, or be involved in. Um, well, I, I feel good about the conversation unless uh, either of you have something profoundly like, oh, I don't want to leave the conversation without mentioning this. We can go to the fog meter. You guys good? I think I'm good. It's it, yeah. the, the, the nice thing about this movie, though, is you could you could talk about it for ages and, and go through oh. a bunch of different things, and that's that's yeah, it's really rich that way. So absolutely, absolutely. But I, I think um, we've covered. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So uh, Nathan, you good? I'll go to the fog meter. Okay, so the I'm fog good. meter is our unique metric of fear and God, wherein we categorize and rate the kind of scares and fears and the uh, substance and the themes of the individual fe- uh, films that we cover, or the media that we cover. Um, so Jordan Peele's Nope, written, produced, directed by Jordan Peele. Uh, Matt, as our guest, I'm going to let you go first. Zero to ten on the fear meter. What would you give to Nope? Pretty low. I think I would probably be somewhere between a three and a four, you know, because mm-hmm. it's been probably closer to three just because, yeah, I there, there was there was tension a lot of the time, but I was never really again, the, the most horrifying things were were stuff again, like the poor girl missing her face that that freaked yeah. me out a lot more than anything than the creature in the sky did. So, yeah, absolutely. I was, I was a little nervous that, you know, who, or, or any of my characters who I care about going to die. But that was the closest <laughs> I, I think I came to really getting scared. And the the little aliens in the barn before I figured out what Whew. they were. No joke. Yeah, absolutely. No joke. Um, Nathan, what would you give it for fear? Hmm. I think Gordy does a lot of heavy lifting. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he looks at you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's scary. I I don't disagree. And so I I think I'm going to be a little generous on a five in part because I do think even with Gordy, this is not traditional 
scare, but just the design of so much of the creatures and that, that image, honestly, I thought of the shining read when, when the monsters over the house and, and all the stuff is pouring forth and like, that shot you know, is that, great. That, that is a yeah. truly horrifying image. And just so, so uh, a lot of work being done by Gordy, but also just the design of the creature and how they utilize the creature visually does a lot of the work here. So I don't disagree. It's, it's not scary once, once and especially when you know, what's going on right well um, the thing i want to say about the creature by sure. the way is when it unfurls at the very end that is amazing yes. oh it's uh, stunning yeah yeah that is and a it does, really amazing effect and the little uh the the where it's like flashing the yeah. green over the oh mouth. man yeah. that was fascinating really really fascinating um so nathan you may remember uh one of my irrational fears that i think has been when i've brought it up before gets joked about on the show is of of in the in the night like if i'm outside at night looking up and having this genuinely like blood pressure rising sense of there's something in the sky that's either going to come down mm. or something you know i've mentioned that before I don't remember so that when, one. okay yeah so but when you talk about like some of the, the specifically that shot in the night like i wrote down in my notes like when they see the thing in the sky at night first, which I don't think those shots were actually made at night, which it's just still stunning to me. But like some of those shots I found really suspenseful and really riveting, um, but couched in this film that is not that pervasively, um, I think I'm going to land at a four for the fear, ma- uh, fear measurement. To, but uh, editors know there. Yes, they were shot at night. Oh, they were. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I read. I thought I read somewhere that they were shot during the day and like uh, through a special filter, but um, I, I must have read it wrong. At least uh, not the look over the house, the monsters there, and all the rain. That that was definitively uh, oh. just because I watched some of the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. So to distinguish, I'm not talking about that shot. I'm talking about the first time that Emerald and OJ see it as they see oh. it moving through at nighttime. But it doesn't. Gotcha. It yeah, doesn't ultimately matter because maybe those were at night too. Um, so th- so on the fear measurement, I give it a four. For the God measurement, I do think there's a lot here, but I don't think it's the kind of film that's going to make you walk away, you know, really, <laughs> I mean, it might confuse you because you're constantly looking for, for more, but I think its themes, while rich and while substantive, um, are, are kind of there. Uh, I think there's a temptation to look at it more than what it really is and what it's really purveying. Um, so I'm going to go with a six on the God meter uh, for this one. What say you, Nathan? Six feels fair. Um, I, what's fascinating is I don't think he's after profundity per se, as much as just thoughtfulness, richness and, and, and excellence in craft. And, and so, you know, those things all entwine create a very substantive experience. Um, even if the actual things they're after are, are pretty, pretty to your point direct so what did i say a six that's what i missed yeah six okay and what about you matt bring us home what would you give it for the god meter i I mean i think for me and and again this is partly just the the larger gestalt of like oh my gosh i get it now i i'm gonna go with a 10 just because i'm like yeah i i for me it's like it 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 taught me how to watch Jordan Peele movies in a way now and it's just it's just (laughs) giving me a new appreciation for his work and i yeah I am again. It's the same thing with with Brit Marling stuff, where I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is this speaks to me in a really interesting way that I I'm really happy about. So yeah, 
Yeah, go no, with awesome. Yeah, uh, I keep meaning to mention this. My exposure to Brit Marling, even though yeah, the the OA is is kind of the most prominent thing. But I watched Another Earth and Sound yes. of My Voice on the same day, so and I watched good. them as a. Those, I love those films. So I yeah I. Uh, but Another Earth is a perfect example. That was the first thing of hers I saw, and it's like you yeah. you think you read the premise, and then it's like wait a minute, it, this is about a woman who killed somebody mm-hmm. in a drunk driving accident right. what does that have to do with science fiction and it's like it yeah. doesn't exactly it's takes this does it something totally different so yeah yeah uh, yeah so. one wonderful wonderful films um so we give jordan peele's nope a six out of ten on the fog meter uh pretty substantive showing for that and uh, that gives you a sense of how scary and how substantive it is when you're going into it but would we recommend the film nathan i'm going to start with you would you recommend nope man this is where I, the fog meter just like feels like it works against my uh, interest here because uh, yeah, I, I absolutely. I mean, sure. Uh, you know, to be fair. Yeah. The fog meter measuring very specific things and then aggregated, um, you know, won't necessarily sync up there, but yeah, I mean, I can't like, I'd, I'd be open to go and turning it on right now. <laughs> yeah, like, of course. Of course. I, it'd be fun to watch, you know? So anyway, so, yes, absolutely. I recommend it. So I'll, I'll go next and then we'll let Matt close us off. But like, like uh, one thing that li- we've never really said this out blatantly, but one thing that should be remembered about the fog meter is that the fog meter is not registering quality. It is specifically registering scariness and substance. So it's kind of registering gravity. It's kind of registering like how hefty is the sure. movie. And so that doesn't, you know, you could have something that's got two on the fog meter and, easily recommendable but you know may not be very hefty in terms of those kinds of things so you know don't don't let that diminish it i i i do recommend nope i'm a little bit less enthusiastic about it than i am some of his other films but i was pleased profoundly pleased that when i was watching this film the second time around it was not work it was not labor nathan you've said it a dozen times in this conversation it is a gorgeous film to look at i was very sucked in it was easy to watch the screen. It was easy to watch these characters. I was very invested in it. And for that reason alone, uh, I think it's highly recommendable. So, yeah, I, I definitely recommend it as well. Matt, bring us home. Isn't, I'm sorry this? to cut, uh, jump in here. Yeah. Isn't that wild to, to say like how rare it is you could come away and be like, I really liked watching that thing. You yes. know, it's like yeah. it, yeah. Do, it yeah. didn't even have to have this deep, rich, meaty, profound, laborious aspect to it. It's just right. This is really fun to just look at. That's that's a, yeah. I don't know. It's just weird yeah. to have yeah. that. And it definitely is. Matt, do you recommend Nope? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I would say just you know, but understand that you know you you may want to go into it with that that right spirit to to see it on its own terms may take a couple viewings and um, sure. And you know, if you're tired and don't want to think too hard, then Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> fair that's totally fair save it that's for a awesome. when you're yeah you're, you want to meet 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 it in, in its place so that's awesome that's awesome well matt we appreciate so much you taking some time out of your evening to be here with us it's always such a joy to have you back um i want to emphasize again to listeners check out matt's new book destroyer of worlds on shelves february 21st um at all of the major outlets support your local bookstore support your local library or your preferred outlet of choice it's going to be available everywhere so thank you again uh for being here to discuss nope um and uh, nathan thank you as always listeners thank you as always um next week we are going to be i teased it a little bit earlier in the episode but next week we are going to be talking about a film that caused a lot of buzz in a lot of ways i'm very excited to to have this conversation uh starring ray fines and anya taylor joy the menu uh really really interesting film one of your top 10 horror films of last year uh, so check out the menu if you have not yet seen it 
pick something off of it, devour it, enjoy it, and then uh, meet us back here next week for it. As we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Thank you again, Nathan. Thank you again, Matt. Thank you again, listeners. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much, guys. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media, essays, and episode archive merchandise and more. If you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast. There you'll unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online event access, and so much more. We want to issue a special thanks to Jacob Hunt of TracerMatula.com for our artwork, also to our assortment of talented musicians, including Andrew Nelson, The Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes, and also to Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music. Special thanks also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Hi, everybody.